Good morning, church family. Uh, I, I hope you could sense there's a, what the Lord is doing, and I've been talking to the staff about this. The Lord is elevating the pastors, the leadership of our church. And as you can see, it's kind of a team effort here. All right? and, and I'm so grateful for these men who serve the church lovingly. These are great brothers. They love Christ. They love His Word. And it's exciting to see what's happening. And I hope you know how grateful I am toward the opportunity to be able to preach to this church family. I don't know if I've ever said that before, or you might have, but it's just an incredible opportunity. It's ridiculous I get to do this. It's ridiculous I get to stare at Revelations 19 all week long. All week long. I'm lost in the wonders of heaven, of Christ coming back. And this is a very edifying, sanctifying thing for me, and I think I get the most out of it, but hopefully you get something out of it this morning. And today we're looking at the fourth uh, sermon in this Look to Christ series. The, the sermon title is The Return of Christ. The Return of Christ. This is what we've been waiting for. All right, as Christians, as followers of Christ, this event is what we've been waiting for. And Genesis 3, since Genesis 3, this is what creation's been waiting for. The Bible says that creation groans, groans for, for the day when creation could exist without sin. And as creation groans, sin does take its course. I mean, it's not getting any better, as you guys know. All you have to do is turn on the news to see all the things that's going on, all the hurt, all the pain, the social issues. You know, just in our country, the racial tension that's escalating daily, seems like. Prisons are overflowing. I mean, socially, things aren't getting better. Increased wickedness. You know, sexual deviancy is accepted in our culture. What is good is called evil. What is bad is called good. I mean, there's senseless killings. A couple weeks ago, there's a shooting back in Colorado again at a school. I mean, just crazy stuff. Things, Itzko, 50 years ago, was thinking unthinkable. Things are like this, are escalating. The, uh, The government is pushing bills and certain ideas that you'd just be appalled about. Like, what are they thinking? I can't believe this is even on the table to vote for. Nature is, is getting more and more pollution. All these things, you, you, it's obvious what's going on. Things are not getting better. Politically, we, we definitely don't, do not show a trust for our leadership. There's things that are just getting worse. And this is why nature groans. This is why we long for this day of Revelation 19. This is what we've been waiting for. And in some ways, you kind of get a very vivid look at what Revelation 19 is about. I mean, you may have, may, you may or may not have looked at 19 this way, but when you see it clearly, it's going to be horrifying in some ways. God gives us some very detailed accounts of how Christ is returning back to earth. No longer as a lamb, but the Lion of Judah. So let's just pray as we get, uh, prepare our hearts to hear God's word preached. Like Pastor Victor talked about, we get to worship God by hearing his word preached. This is a huge part of worship. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I pray your word will be preached. We pray, Christ, that you will be proclaimed. So Father, I pray Revelation 19 will be preached clearly with power and conviction through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we will be in worship and wonder as we hear clear descriptions of who you are, Lord Jesus, so that we can look to you more clearly. Father God, I just thank you 
Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to preach your word, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to preach about your son, Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be at a Revelation 19. As you're turning there to your Bibles and to your devices, a little bit of context. Revelation 19 was ba- is basically a continuation of Revelation 5. Revelation 5 from last week, we had this heavenly, court, uh, heavenly throne room scene where Christ is coronated as the king. The Lamb of God who was slain is elevated as being the owner as, and he takes the title deed of creation in his hand and he's coming back to reclaim what is his. Meanwhile, he's assembling his army, his heavenly troops to come back with him. This was what was preached last week. And in the meantime, from Revelation 6 to Revelation 18, all kinds of crazy things are happening on earth. Earth is also preparing for the coming of Christ as well. All right, politically, there's a one-world ruler named the Antichrist or the Beast. This is an agent of Satan, totally empowered by Satan. This is the rule of the world. He has one world government. He unifies the world in this way. There's one world economy, one world military force, one world religion, where ultimately Satan wants to be worshipped through the Antichrist. This is the climate that's happening on earth during Revelation 6 through 18 before the coming of Christ. Okay, and and there's untold destruction. God, Jesus unseals the seals on the scroll and God's judgment is falling upon the earth. What the Bible describes is this, is a horrific scene. A third of the trees in the greenery are destroyed. A third of the oceans are destroyed and everything that lives in them. A third of the drinking water on the planet is contaminated and polluted. Meteors are falling from space and bombarding and destroying the earth. Nuclear warheads are going off. A third of the world's population has been killed now. This is what earth is like. And this is what's happening. Demons are being released and taking a physical form and tormenting people. This is, this is a horrific scene. Okay, I believe the Bible teaches that the saints have been raptured. The Christians are up there in heaven in, in chapter 5, represented by the 24 elders. But the good news, the bright spot of what's going on on earth is, is this. The greatest revival is taking place on earth right now. People are starting to recognize, oh my goodness, this is God's judgment. What's been talked about for years and centuries and thousands of years is the fact that Christ is Lord. People are coming to Christ at an unprecedented rate. The nation of Israel, there's a a faithful remnant of Israel that turns to Christ where God keeps his promise to the nation of Israel. These, These incredible things are taking place. And this is basically a wide, quick survey of chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 18. That's what's been happening. Now the stage is absolutely set for the final showdown. And this is where we turn to in Revelation 19. So let's rise as we hear the word preached. Revelation 19, 11. There is a marriage before it is, by the way. The church and, and Christ, the Lamb of God. I've come together in verses 7 through 10, and this is where Christ Jesus is getting ready to enter into the atmosphere. Verse 11, <clears throat> and I saw, this is John the Apostle, saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are a flame of fire and his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Who is this? He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Amen. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, the sky, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. God is preparing a feast for the, for the birds, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, soldiers, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and Free men and slaves, rich and poor, and small and great. Verse 19. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled, millions and millions and millions of soldiers, to make war against him, Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast, what happened to the beast, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image, these who were thrown alive into a lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, that's hell, eternal hell. And the rest, these are the soldiers, the human soldiers, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I'm just going to go for three extra verses. I think you would want to know what happens to Satan here. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hands, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old from Genesis chapter 3, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Finishing up here, brothers and sisters. And he threw him into the abyss, that's a big pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. No more father lies. Until the thousand years are completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this detailed description of your coming, Lord Jesus. We thank you for how good you are. May we have a clear picture of who you are, a fuller picture of you, who you are, Lord Jesus, so that we will love you more, so we will trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Wow, that's a mouthful. That'll preach. Now, if preachers say, you know, look up texts and say, that'll preach. That basically preaches for itself. Well, let me just get out of the way a little bit and just try to explain what this text is saying. John saw heaven open up. Remember the first time John looked, saw heaven open up for the first time so he could enter into the throne room? This time John sees heaven open up to unleash Jesus and the angels and the army that comes with them to invade earth. All right, John sees this and they say, behold, Right? He says, Behold, a white horse, and he who, sits, who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Jesus sits on this white horse, all right, and he's called Faithful and True. Faithful to keep all the scriptures and all the promises. Faithful to the redeemed that says, I will set up my kingdom. I will set up New Jerusalem. Faithful to judge those he said he's going to judge. Jesus will keep every single promise that he made. 
Now it's interesting, as we hear of Jesus coming down uh, to heaven, I mean to earth, on a white horse, I, my mind is drawn back to his first triumphal entry. Do you guys remember that one? Before Passion Week, what did he come riding on? A donkey. Huge contrast from donkey to horse. What happened to Jesus? He came as the humble lamb of God, silent and slain. He was given a crown of thorns to wear, and, now, and he will end up on the cross on that Friday. Now Jesus comes back the second time on a white horse. Do I think that he came literally riding a white horse? I don't. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Greco-Roman uh, symbolism in this text here. The white horse is emblematic of a conquering war hero. Jesus is the warrior king. He's coming back not as the Lamb of God anymore. He's coming back as a Lion of Judah. Point number one, Jesus is the warrior king. And the horse represents that he comes back as, a, as the conquering hero. And back in those Roman uh, Empire days, when they conquered, generals would conquer certain cities, they would parade down that city riding a white horse symbolizing victory and, and, and proclaiming victory. And he doesn't come with palm branches or anything. He comes with yielding a sword this time. And the Bible says in verse 11 here, he judges and wages war. He comes now as a judge. And his intention is to wage war. Now this word judge in the original language means to determine. So basically, what is Jesus determining as he comes down? What is he going to determine with the people? Basically, are you on his team or are you not? If you're with him, you're going to be with him. If you're not, you will be judged. This is what Jesus comes down to do as he wages war. Now, the Bible in verse 12 says that his eyes are a flame of fire. What does this mean? His eyes indicate his perfect knowledge, perfect vision. His eyes are flame of fire. He's able to penetrate to every single heart of ours. He knows exactly what we're thinking. Like we talked about before in the past, he knows if you genuinely love him or not. That's the key. Do I genuinely love Christ Jesus as Lord? And as he's coming down, he has fire in his eyes. He has war in his eyes as well. And this is the whole thing. Now, verse 13, this is going to be very vivid here. I want you to feel this, the warrior king. It says that his robe is dipped in blood in verse 13. Now, whose blood is this, you may ask? Is this the lamb's blood? Right? Is this the lamb's blood? Joshua 5 calls Jesus the commander or the captain of the the army of the Lord. This isn't Jesus' first war now. Just understand this. Do you remember what happened to the Egyptians and and Pharaoh at at the Red Sea? He drowned thousands of Egyptians. Do you remember as Joshua uh, led the people into Israel, into the promised land? He slaughtered a lot of those uh, people in Canaan. Do you remember what happened to Sennacherib's army, 185,000 men that came to siege Jerusalem? They all were killed overnight. This is the blood of Jesus' enemies on his robe. He's basically putting on his battle gear to come in. This is not the coronation. This is wartime for Jesus right now. And this is the, his mindset. This is not his first, his first battle. And verse 15, it says that he treads 
At the end of 15, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. What does this mean? And and in the Old Testament, there's pictures. There's clear pictures that explain what what Revelation is talking about. Let me just take you, uh, give you a moment here to read out of Isaiah 63. This is going to be very clear. Isaiah 63, this is prophecy of God's vengeance on the earth. Why is your, verse 2, why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. This is asking, why are your garments red, Lord? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the people there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. He's smashing the people and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. He's crushing his enemies. Blood is splattering on to Christ Jesus. And I stained all my raiments, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. This is a day of reckoning. And my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. Verse 6, I trod down the people in my anger, the wrath of God, and made them drink in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The Bible says that Jesus will have wrath against his enemies. This is his holy wrath. Jesus is basically unleashed now as the Lion of Judah. No longer is he the silent lamb. He comes now with the roar as the Lion of Judah, and he's taking it out on his enemies. He's, this is what his intentions are. Jesus is the warrior king. He comes with, the, it says, crown after crown. Is he wearing ten crowns on his head? No. But he's coming in as the king of the universe Rightfully so, reclaiming what's his. He's the creator and he's the redeemer of all creation. So this is, this is that picture that we have. Oftentimes, I believe we focus in on the lion of, Judah, uh, lion of God's side of Christ. Gentle, humble, meek, gracious, merciful, loving. Amen. 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 This is who he is. However, there's a whole other side to the same coin, the, the Lion of Judah side, where he has holy wrath against sinners. This is what we're talking about. I want to talk a little bit here, verse 14 here. I want to focus in on verse point number two. The armies of Christ. Who are the armies of Christ? And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who is this army? These are the angels. No doubt the angels. The angels are talked about in, the, in what uh, one of the angels takes care of Satan in verse 20, I mean chapter 20. But this is a holy entourage. These are believers. Christians are coming back with Christ to rec- help reclaim all of creation. I don't know how much we're going to be doing, quite frankly. I think Jesus is right in front and we're kind of right there watching but we're coming back with him. In verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 8, talking about this wedding, it was given to her, this is the church, to clothe her, the bride of Christ herself, in fine linen, bright and clean. Just like in 14, fine linen, white and clean, instead of bright and clean. This is, these are talking about redeemed people, brothers and sisters. This is you and I coming back down in, with, the conquering, with the conquering hero. This is, these are redeemer, or redeemed people coming back with Jesus. This is the scene now. 
This is absolutely the scene that sets up the stage for the end game of Christ. That's point number three. Point number three, the end game of Christ, Armageddon. Armageddon is the end of the world as we know it. And going back, going to a Jerusalem, uh, Israel last year, I said two years ago, a couple of sermons ago, but it was just last year, just a lot of things that happened in the year. Uh, last year, you know, we got to see a place called Megiddo. And our teacher who took us through Israel said, this is where our Megiddo is going to take place, Megiddo, the valley, the Jezreel Valley. And there's a picture that I took, and it's just a valley. I mean, you look down, and it's just flat plains, fields. There's no buildings. There, there's, there, there's nothing. It's just, just open space. And our tour guide or, or, uh, talked to about it, about this place, about us. It's like the 5 freeway. He's been to California. And it's like the I-5 where you could just go up and down California on uh, no problems. And so the, this area, the plain of Megiddo, all four sides, from north to south to west to east, there's open access to this area. So troops, millions, hundreds of millions, 200 million, 300, 400 million troops could gather at this spot pretty easily. All right? And this is, the, this is where the final battle will be taken place in Armageddon. In verse 19, I want, to, I want to read this here for us. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the commander of the world, the ruler of the world, and the kings of the earth. There's ten kings. The whole earth is divided up into ten segments. And there's a king in charge of each segment. Each king will answer to the Antichrist. Okay, These are the ten kings of, of the earth. And their armies assembled, unified military force, to make war against him. What? Are they thinking they're going to do war with the king of kings, the lord of lords? Yes, that's what they're thinking. Who sat on the horse and against his army, against us. Now, the earth is making one large push to make one dramatic stand against Jesus. This is going to happen. This is how deceived the people were by the Antichrist. He's assembled one military force. The demonic slash human forces are gathered there. Some commentators believe there'll be like 400 million troops there to fight against Christ in that Jezreel Valley. Okay, and and think about this. This is sometime in the future. We have some technology available to us today. I'm talking about every nuclear mass destruction, destructive device, every nuclear warhead, every atomic bomb that they have in the future will be available there. Every laser, every satellite technology, every, the most sophisticated fighter pilots will be in the, deployed in the air. Helicopters to shoot everything down. Missiles, gr- ground to, uh, to air, defense mechanisms and systems will be set up. Everything will be there. This millions and millions and millions and millions of armies will be e- equipped to the f- fullest to fight the, the, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is the scene that we have. This is it. So as heaven was getting ready for this final showdown, this final invasion, so was earth. And they actually think they got a chance. And as they're looking here, as I'm looking here, verse 15, the earth is armed with all these military weapons. What is Jesus armed with? Verse 15, first part. From his mouth, right, this is what the Bible says, comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Jesus is armed with a sword, which is his word. Right? Isn't the Bible called the sword of the Spirit? Sharper than any two-edged sword than I think Hebrews 4. This is God, Jesus, coming armed simply with his word. 
And this is what he does. What, and what, what happens to these people? And I want to remark here, chapter 19 has 21 verses. The first 19 verses talking about Christ. All right? And there's only two mere verses talking about what happens in this battle. You think this epic showdown, and there's two verses. And this is all that the Bible needs to say, because the focus is not on the Antichrist or these armies. It's about Christ. Verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him this false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. This false prophet, this unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Okay, these are agents of Satan, the false... This false prophet and the, and the Antichrist are thrown into hell. Boom, done. In an instant, it's done. They're thrown into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. And what happened to those 400 million uh, troops? And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The birds came and ate up the bodies. So I, I don't think it was some epic battle where there's all kinds of crazy explosions on it. Jesus just said, done. That's it. Millions of people were, I mean, the, the blood that flowed in Revelation 14 says there was blood for 200 miles. I mean, this is an incredible scene here. Incredible scene. And so where he spoke with his word, Jesus has the power to create in Hebrews 1, 3, it says he ha- his word is what keeps the universe together. His word is what keeps every molecule, every atom together. So he just loosened it all in that moment for those troops, dead. This is what we have to look forward to as people coming back with Christ. And verse 20, let's hear what happens to Satan, the ringleader. Going back to Genesis 3, remember how, how the Genesis 3.15 said that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head? This is what happens here. This is what we look forward to someday. This is how we get back to the garden. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So for a thousand years, Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. We get to be with Jesus on earth as the king for a thousand years. During those thousand years, Satan's bound up in the, in, in the abyss of prison. After those thousands, thousand years, there's one final quick blip. Satan and his rest of his forces thrown into the lake of fire, and that's it. Jesus takes care of what he promised us to do. Now, why is this so important for us to go through? Why is Revelation 19 so important to go through? One of my friends who's been preaching for a long time, he goes, any faithful preacher must get the end right, right? This is the end of the story, right? You see the book? We, we, we started at Genesis 3, and now this is the end of the story, we need to get the end of the story right, okay? And the end of the story says it's going to turn out all right for God's people. We need to know that. So whatever we're going through right now, doesn't that put things in absolute perspective? At the end, Jesus makes it perfectly good again. Remember in Genesis, he says, it was very good when you created things. This is what we're going back to. 
And if you're sitting here today not as a Christian, <clears throat> I would urge you, I would urge you with everything I got, please accept the peace that God is offering to you right now. Free peace. Through the offering that he comes to you as the Lamb of God, say, please take this. I want to forgive you. You have that opportunity today to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. I need the grace that you have for me through your death and resurrection on the cross. This is what this is, this is, what this is about for non-believers. If there's any non-believers in here, maybe you've been coming to Evergreen for a long time, for decades even, and you're starting to realize, maybe I'm not a Christian. Could that be? If so, this is the greatest day of your life. Turn to Christ today because in that day, Revelation 19, you need to be on his side. You need to be coming down with him and not to have the sword pointed at you at that moment. At that point, it's over. Now my heart is, I just want to make sure I communicate to the saints, to the brothers and sisters. Why do we take time to go through Revelation 19? Is this, I desire, as Pastor Victor talked about this Look to Christ series, for us to look to Christ, like he talked, dependence, trust, identity, my, my, my treasure, my hope is in you, Christ. How can you trust? How can you have your identity and how can you hope for something? How can you treasure something or someone above all if you don't know him very well? If we don't know this side of Christ, I don't know if you can worship him in the way that he deserves to be worshipped. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Make no mistake about that. That's how we look to Christ. The one that loves me. The one that's merciful to me. The one that cares for me. The one that's tender to me. The one that who understands is also the warrior king. The one that I trust in has everything under control. And if anyone's wronged me, and I'm pretty sure everyone in this room has had someone done some sin against you, and perhaps you're in it right now, any legal issues, any relational issues, any distrust, any, any betrayals, those things are the most difficult things to overcome in my mind. These things will be handled by the warrior king, either on the cross as the lamb or as the warrior king, the lion of Judah. These sins will be handled. You could trust that. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. And in some ways, if you understand the weight of Revelation 19, you will be praying for these people to repent. If you want to have the heart of the king, you're praying that your enemies will repent and turn to Christ as Lord. You don't want your worst enemies to go through the, the lake of fire. You don't want that to happen. You certainly don't want that to happen to yourself. If you want to be more like Christ, the Bible says you pray for people that they will come to salvation, even your enemies. I'm just going to finish up here. I want, I want us to look at verse 14 here one last time. Let's take a look at this here. There's, there's two words that really um, captured my mind and my heart. And the armies which are in heaven, which you establish are Christians and angels, believers and angels, clothed in fine linen and white, and which are white and clean. We're following him. 
We're following him. Simple as can be. We're following him. They were following Jesus out of heaven. You see, heaven is not a place. Heaven is being with Christ. I will follow you, Jesus, to war. That's the safest place for me to be is with you, Jesus. This is the most place I want to be is with you, Jesus. And as I think back, I, I put myself in John, John's mind, the Apostle John's mind. He, remember we talked about it. He, 60 years ago, he decided to follow Christ. Now he's in his 80s, perhaps, on the island of Patmos, rotting away, alone. His best friends, his best buddies have been murdered and killed, martyred. They tried to kill him too, but he somehow he had resolved and to be able to survive all those attacks. And now the Romans throw him on that island. And he sees this vision of a massive army, uncountable army, made up of every tribe, every tongue, and nation following Jesus. And I, in my mind and my heart is drawn back to Luke early parts of Matthew, Mark, where Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, the brothers, and then James and John from their fishing industry, fishing business. And John is back home in the Sea of Galilee as a young man, perhaps in his 20s. He has his whole life ahead of him right now as his 20s. Some of you guys are young. You have your whole life ahead of you right now thinking, what do I want to do with my life? And there he is, perhaps I could make a living by my dad's fishing business and, and, and raise a family and, and, and do wonderful things and have a happy life. Perhaps that's what he's thinking. But it, there's an absolutely interruption to all that when Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee and Peter, Andrew, James, John catch nothing. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, why don't you throw your net over here? Master, all right, we've been doing that, but okay. He throws it in there and pulls up a net full of fish, and the net starts to burst. The boat starts to sink. They call over other boats to come, and right then and there, Jesus says, hey, look. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, let go of those nets. Let go of the boat. Let go of your family and come follow me. And the Bible says this, I will make you fishers of men. That's what the Bible said. This is John in his 20s now. He has his whole future ahead of him. And what did the Bible say? How did they respond? It says they, he, in Luke, it says they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, fast forward six years to John, who's, who's, who's older now, 80s perhaps, dying on the island of Patmos, and he sees a massive cat riding on white, white horses following Christ out of heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people that he's never even seen before, types of people he's never seen before. And he must have been wondering, oh, this is what I've been a part of? This is the fruit of the work that I've invested in. This is the money that I invested into. This is the enterprise I decided to do. This is the type of men I trained and they able to spread the message to the whole world. I mean, what do you think is going on in John's mind right there? I mean, I, I, I don't know. We'll ask him Sunday, but it's got to be pure joy. It was worth it. He's thinking, oh, this, this is it. 
God, you let me be part of this. Jesus. And they're still following you out of heaven even. So I'm still talking to you brothers and sisters, all right? I'm trying to put this in perspective for us. When we come down out of heaven with Jesus, I don't think we'll be riding those white horses, but in a triumphant march with Jesus, somehow, cosmically, we're coming down. The Bible says that we were at fine linen, bright and clean. Remember, Jesus is the one with the, his robe dipped in blood. He is the bloody one. I think we're just going to be watching and Jesus just slaughters everybody. Our work, our war may be there because Christ, our Lord, is at war. But our battle, our front lines is right now. We're in the battle right now. This is the time to evangelize. This is the time to build up, build up the saints. This is the time to give of your finances. This is the time to exercise your gift to build up the body of Christ. Now's the time. On that side of eternity, evangelism isn't happening. This is the time where you want to be a useful vessel unto the Lord. You don't want to be counted useless. You don't want to be a clay pot. You want to be a vessel of silver and gold, serving up this fine dish that God has prepared. I love this verse. I'm going to just, this is bonus here. We're out of Revelation for a second. 2 Timothy, verse 3. Uh, Timothy is written to Paul, who's in a similar situation. He's about to be killed in Rome. He's, this is his very last letter. So John writes this in his last letter, last appeal to the churches to encourage them. This is Peter, Paul writing to his understudy, Timothy. This is the last thing he would want to write to his most treasured disciple. This is my guy, Timothy. You're my guy. I want to say this to you. He says, you therefore, my son. Look at the endearing. There's, 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 a, there's a connection. There's a bond. There's a relationship. There's motivation to my son, my, 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 my spiritual father, Paul. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, train up men, he's telling him, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then verse 3, he calls, he calls Timothy a soldier. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now is the time, Timothy. I know you're a little bit scared. I know you're a little bit nervous. I know you don't know what's going to happen to me. And you're concerned it's going to happen to you too. Suffer hardships with me. Stay in the trenches with me. Keep shooting back. Keep throwing blows. Keep defending what's right. Keep fighting for souls. Keep fighting for sanctification of the saints in your church. Don't give up. Even if they start punching back at you, stay in the fight, Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? Why are you not supposed to be consumed with this, the things of the world? Why, Paul? Why? He tells us very clearly. So that, I love it when he says so that, so clear why he's explained. So that 
the soldier, he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Our main purpose is to please the one riding on the white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's our whole focus. That motivates me. On a lower level, that motivates me for other brothers and sisters to pour into my life. I can think of these men right now and these sisters who've prayed for me for years when I wasn't a believer. I could think of brothers who's come alongside me and taught me the Bible. Other brothers who come alongside me and challenge me in my sin issues and temptations that I struggle with, keeping me accountable. I love these men. I love these women that have poured into me. That serves as motivation. My spiritual fathers, my spiritual mothers. But the one that motivates me the most, okay? Life is about motivation. As an athlete, I always look for great motivators. I wanted to be around these people because I wanted to feel them. I wanted to know them. I wanted to capture their thoughts in my heart and my mind. I didn't want to let them down for those who chose to invest in me. These men and women invested in me. I am incredibly motivated to. I think about my mom. I think of my dad. I think about these people who, who poured in, invested into me. I know you could think of people like that too. I know you could think of one or two or ten people that's poured into your life who loved you so much. That's motivation. But the greatest motivation comes out of verse 4. So that he, you, me, may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Are you kidding me? The one that just merely speaks and destroys 400 million soldiers at one time. The one who clothed us with fine linen, which is bright and clean, or white and clean. The one that, as we sung, we're going to be married to somehow. All right? We're going to be united with Christ. We're going to be following. So this, as John is reflecting... 20-year-old man, what an affirmation for John right there. It's worth it. I'm, I could have been the fish king, but instead I become a fisher of men, and the fisher of men are, are riding the horses coming down with Christ. And we get to be part of that too. In some level, in levels of evangelism, and your commitment to build up other Christians so they become more like him. We preach Christ here. This is what we do. This is who we minister. This is why we say we look to Christ. This is what, this is what we do. We train up people to become more like Christ. As life gets messy, as life gets hard, you, you will take some shots. This is, this is all part of war. That's the expectation. That's the mentality. You will get there. But just know that it's actually Jesus doing the battle for you. You just get to be there by him. And sometimes they'll think, they'll, things will get splattered around you on, on your clothes on this side of eternity. You're dealing with illness. You're dealing with hard things. You're dealing with family members who you love dearly and they, they're sick. You're dealing with people who you maybe don't love very much and they're absolutely cruel and, they, and, they, and they, they accuse you of all kinds of crazy things. That could be. But stay in the fight, be a good soldier, and let's look to please the one that's enlisted us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to see your son in a clear picture of his wrath and his ferociousness as we heard his roar in Revelation 19. And, the, and you love us so much, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that we get to be people that come with you by your grace. Nothing that we've done, but because you love us and because you're gracious to us. So, Lord, I pray that we, as a church family at Evergreen SGV, your bride, will have a fuller picture of who you are. You are the Lion of, the Lamb of God. You are the Lion of Judah as well. And I pray these things, these things will be crystallized and cemented in our hearts and minds. We will see a clear picture of you, who you are, so that we would trust you. We will be able to hope in you. We will be able to treasure you above all. Our identities will be stamped and cemented in you, Lord Jesus. So I thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. I pray Revelation 19 will ring in our hearts. Today we see you again. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.